You're listening to Adventure Cross. Chapter 2 Katie and I love to sit with Miss Cowart on the back porch in the summertime or in the den by the roaring fire in the winter. She told marvelous tales about her life and the miracles that had happened on the farm. From the time I saw mules plod past our house when I was a little girl, Miss Cowart said, closing her eyes remembering, I was enslaved. We were sitting in the cool shade of the back porch, glad to be out of the heat that blazed in shimmering waves in the rolling fields beyond the fence. Our horses, tethered by bridle reins, switched flies with their tails as they stood in the shade of the elms. By the time I was six years old, I'd identified the fluttering and murmurings deep within me at the sight or smell of anything equine. They were early symptoms of horse fever. Daddy was stationed at Pearl Harbor during World War II, and our family moved to California to be closer to him. To take my mind off the war, Mother bought me my first horse. His name was Socks. I trained him to jump and to count by pawing the ground with his hoof and nod his head to say yes. On my command, he would lie down or even stand up on his hind legs. After the war, before we moved back to Alabama, Mother said I had to sell him. Mrs. Cowart laughed her funny laugh, which was kind of a cross between a giggle and a snort. <laughs> I thought if he didn't sell, I could bring him home. So every time someone came to see him, I'd wave my arms for a signal for him to rear up. But even though he never sold, I still didn't get to take him home with me. Miss Cowart sighed and gazed into the distance as if she could still see that horse socks in her mind's eye. Katie and I loved to hear about when she and Mr. Cowart had been in college together at the University of Alabama. She had taken her beloved horse, Madam, to school with her. And at 19 years old, Mr. Cowart purchased a black horse named Mike with the money he got from selling his blood to the Red Cross. He would ride Mike over the manicured lawns and across the sidewalks of the University of Alabama. It was so romantic, Miss Cowart said. He, a knight on his steed, would ride to the art school to pick me up after classes. Then they'd ride double across the quadrangle, dodging Mustangs and Cougars. That is, Ford Mustangs and Mercury Cougars. The cars honked and waved at the four-legged oddity that waited at red lights beside them. After they got married, Mr. Cowart joined the paratroopers, and they were forced to sell their small herd. When they had their first child and named him Mike, everyone thought they named him after that old black horse. Love and Richard followed their big brother in quick succession, and it looked like owning horses was history. That is, Miss Cowart laughed, until high finance came along. She pointed in the direction of a sway-back arthritic horse who stood morosely out in the field. High Finance was now out to pasture and enjoying the fruits of retirement. Mrs. Cowart's sister, Brownie Evans, had wanted a horse, 
So the Evans and Cowards pooled their money, even searching under sofa cushions for spare change. After raising the enormous sum of $175, they named their new acquisition High Finance. But they soon grew tired of sharing finance between the two families, so the Cowards found another horse that lived in a car repair garage. Its stable mates were old tires and broken trucks. The horse was part saddlebred, and Miss Cowart said she wanted him more than anything else in the world. But they had spent their fortune on finance and didn't have a large enough sum to buy this new horse. One night, Mr. and Mrs. Cowart had a brainstorm session. Nita, you could set up a lemonade stand, Mr. Cowart suggested with a grin. <laughs> There's already enough competition in the neighborhood with the girls stand on our side of the street and the boys on the other. Each side slashes prices to sweeten the deal and win customers. The girls promise to sing and dance and the boys pretend to be injured to lurid folks to stop. Really, John, she sobered, isn't this something you can sell to buy that horse? They studied the living room furniture. Mother would kill me if I sold any of the furniture or china or silver. She's dead set on me turning out to be a Mountain Brook lady like she is. It's too late for that, don't you think? Mr. Cowart snickered. But I like you just the way you are, Nita. Like? she asked, watching him from the corner of her eye. You know I love you, but I also think it's important that I like to be with you, too, he said, kissing her tenderly on the forehead. Suddenly, he jerked her back, gripping her arms with wide eyes and a big grin. Hey, I know what we can sell. That old stove your mother gave us. It's just sitting in our basement. So the next day, Mr. Cowart loaded the stove in the back of the company truck and went out to bargain with the owner of the horse. Before he even knocked, the door opened a crack and moonlight gilded a long barrel of a shotgun. It pointed straight at Mr. Cowart's head. I'm unarmed, Mr. Cowart shouted, holding up his perspiring palms in plain sight. All I've got is a stove. The gun barrel lowered and a man's head poked out. He surveyed Mr. Cowart with squinting eyes. I knew that, he grumbled. But before he walked out, he glanced right and left in case someone might be hiding in the bushes. They made an even trade, the horse for the stove. And soon after, the cowards sold their Mountain Brook home and bought a five-acre farm off Rocky Ridge Road. It was on that five-acre farm that the cowards' love affair with breeding and showing horses blossomed. Horse lovers such as I are incurable, Miss Cowart told Katie and me. Many are snared by the fun of riding, or the sport of showing, or even the art of breeding horses. But after many hours and dollars under the equine spell, fancy or circumstances often pull their attention elsewhere. For the congenital kind of horse people as we are, Something equine is as necessary for well-being as healthy eating habits or good digestion. Katie and I heartily concurred. We wanted to be just like her. Horses were part of our genetic composition, too, 
When on vacation, I'd get withdrawals and would have to find a horse so I could bury my nose in its neck and inhale deeply. I was like an addict who gets trembly without a fix. But a snort of horse scent helped quell the tremors. As the coward's stock of horses began to multiply, their five-acre farm became overcrowded. Nita, Mr. Carrot said one day, let's make this business work. Miss Carrot had never seen her husband so excited. Oh, what do you mean, John? He smiled his crooked grin and raised one eyebrow and whispered, I think we can turn the horses into a financial asset instead of a burden. All we need is a bigger farm. John, you've got to be kidding. We barely even paid for this place. We don't have the money for a big farm. Miss Carrot loved her little farm. With the few horses they had, she could practically wrap her arms around them all at once. But Mr. Cowart kept persisting until she caught the virus. If you think we're meant to move to a bigger place, let's ask God. There's nothing else they could do. They didn't have money for that kind of venture, so they prayed. Lord, give us a story whose very facts prove that you do exist and act in the lives of modern men like you did in the Bible. You said if we delighted in you, you would give us the desires of our hearts. If it's your will for us to pursue this business, give us a farm. Two weeks later, God showed up. Mr. Cowart's employer called him into his office one day. John, I've got something to talk to you about. He sat behind his desk and began shuffling papers. Now, whenever your boss begins a conversation like that, most people begin to sweat. The first question that pops into your mind is, what did I do now? Mr. Cowart stood nervously, shifting from foot to foot, waiting for Mr. Bodkin to continue. Finally, Mr. Bodkin found what he was looking for and cleared his throat. <clears throat> John? He paused to put on his reading glasses. I've made a decision. Um, a, a decision? Mr. Cowart repeated. What was coming? A promotion or demotion? But there's a problem, Mr. Bodkin continued, taking off his glasses again and wiping the sweat from his forehead with the back of his hand. Uh, <clears throat> a problem? Mr. Cowart repeated. Yes, that's what I said, Mr. Bodkin gave Mr. Cowart a level look. I've decided to make a large investment, but I'm at a loss as to how to see to it. Um, an, an investment, Mr. Cowart repeated. Yes, that's what I said, Mr. Bodkin replaced the reading glasses on his nose and looked over the rims at Mr. Cowart. Would you and your wife be interested in looking after it for me? He asked, as if that explained everything. Um, looking after it, sir? Do you have to repeat everything I say? He slammed down his papers. I know it's asking a lot. And if you're not interested, I'll understand. Again, he removed his glasses and placed them on top of the paper. Um, I'm not sure if I follow you, Mr. Cowart said. Well, don't you have livestock? Mr. Bodkin asked. I've heard you talking about your horses. Uh, yes, sir. We have some nice saddlebreds and a couple of two-year-olds my son, Mike, is working with. 
Well, that's why I thought you'd be interested in taking care of my investment. You want to invest in our horses? Mr. Cowart stepped forward with excitement. He had hoped to get some interest in the colts, but had no idea Mr. Bodkin was a horseman. No! I want you to move them to my new investment, a farm I bought near Leeds. It's 120 acres with a five-bedroom house, and there's no way I can take care of something of that magnitude. I need to find someone who will live there and care for it till the land appreciates in value. Ever since I decided to buy it, I just couldn't get you off my mind. I thought I'd run it by you. There'd be no rent, but you'd pay for the upkeep. Overwhelmed, Mr. Cowart was struck dumb. He stood just opening and closing his mouth several times like a fish out of water. Finally, he answered hoarsely, repeating, Move in to your investment? When I first began riding at Heathermore, I dragged Katie along with me. The cowards always managed to scrounge up a horse for her to ride. Before long, Katie and I had become permanent fixtures at the farm. From the very beginning, I had a love affair with the cowards and would have legally changed my name if possible. I called Mrs. Cowart Ma and Mr. Cowart Pa. The Cowarts had had three children in two and a half years, Mike, Richard, and Love. Exhausted and finished with childbearing, Mrs. Cowart laughed when her children ganged up on her and began to pray for another brother. You know what they say about childlike faith. Little Peter followed two years later. Mike, the oldest, was a junior horse trainer from a tender age. He broke colts and trained them to show and won blue ribbons. He named his prize pony Snowfire's Memory. And Miss Coward always wondered what that memory was. And their farm was a child magnet. Mike was the ringleader of all the stray kids the Cowards attracted. All the kids would skip around in a circle pretending to ride magnificent show horses with him as the judge. And after the performance, everyone would line up and listen for Mike to call out the winner. Fistfights sometimes ensued to contest the places he awarded. Other kids followed baseball players' batting averages, but Mike knew every horse's pedigree back to the Civil War. Mrs. Cowart once heard him reciting to a visitor, This one's great-great-grandfather carried General John Hunt Morgan, the leader of the rebel guerrillas, Morgan's Raiders. For every Southerner, it seems to always go back to the Civil War. That is, the war between the states. There is nothing civil about it. At horse show, when the organist played our national anthem, it was Dixie in the South, and everyone would stand with their hand on the heart and sing with gusto, I wish I was in Dixie, away, away. In Dixieland, I'll take my stand to live and die. In Dixie, away, away, away down south in Dixie. Richard, the second son, rode horses with a loose style all his own. And at the tender age of six, he began riding in horse shows. At a canter, one of the horse's front legs leads, or goes ahead of the other. In competition, the rider signals his mount with his leg, 
So when the judge called Cantor, Richard would lean way over to check to see if he was on the right lead. A collective gasp would ripple through the crowd as if everyone was certain the little blonde boy was about to tumble off and break his neck. Unaware of his precarious position, Richard would wobble upright again and finish the class in perfect harmony with his horse. When Richard turned 13, the Cowarts had a gelding that no one could ride. The horse launched Mr. Cowart so high that the bridle ripped off at the apex of his flight. Even Miss Cowart broke her ankle when it unseated her. But Richard, like Alec in the Black Stallion, was the only person this horse would let on his back. The Cowarts finally gave up on breaking the horse to carry other people besides their 13-year-old son, Richard, and took the wild beast to the horse sale in Atlanta. They contemplated riding in the bill of sale. Even a 13-year-old boy can ride him, but decided that would be unethical. Someone might get killed. Finally, they listed the horse as green, broken only to lunge. The next year, they saw it listed in the Saddle Horse Review as a promising new fine harness horse. Someone else must have learned the hard way not to try to ride him since he was relegated to pulling buggies. At six years old, their daughter Love wanted a white horse. Mrs. Cowart found one advertised cheap and went to investigate. Who's the darling? The oversized owner crooned as she walked around the side of a rickety corrugated tin shed. Behind it, a chain-link fence enclosed a small yard containing a pig, some chickens, and a white horse. That'll be seventy-five dollars. The large woman held out a pudgy hand. I, I'd like to see the horse move before I pay you. Miss Cowart eyed the reclining figure with suspicion. The white horse lay immobile on its side, and it was impossible to determine with the naked eye if it was even breathing. The woman clucked her tongue and patted the chain-link fence. Ching, 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 the fence rattled. Here, Silver, come to Mama, darling. Silver did not bat an eye. Is it alive? Miss Cowart asked. The woman chuckled nervously, then squeezed her bulk through the gate and waded through the mud, her pink house shoes slurp, slurping through the muck as she went. She reached down and grabbed hold of the horse's halter and began a tug-of-war. Come on, darling, she huffed with every jerk. For a moment, it looked as if the horse would stand, its head lifted and his legs trembled and straightened, but gravity won, and the animal did not budge. The fat lady didn't sing, but Mrs. Cowart knew it was over. Deciding to get Love a horse she could be proud of and take to shows, Santa Claus tied a little pop-eyed Welsh mare to a tree outside the window on Christmas. Love christened her little bay pony, my, my, after the great world's champion of that time. But her everyday name was Madam, in honor of the old mare from her mother's childhood. Peter, the baby the older children had prayed into existence, grew up with a wild hair. Mrs. Cowart admits she was just too tired to discipline him as consistently as she had his three older siblings. 
Peter was the male counterpart of the nursery rhyme about the little girl with the curl in the middle of her forehead. When he was good, he was very, very good. But when he was bad, he was horrid. Otis was a black man who helped the cowards on the farm. One day he took Peter fishing when he was little. Upon delivering him back to Mrs. Cowart, he motioned to Peter with his chin. Dizzle's going to be trouble. I can tell by the way he walks. Now, Otis wasn't a prophet or the son of a prophet, but his prediction was money. And as a teenager, Peter was the heartthrob of every girl who crossed his path. At the time I began writing at Heathermore, the Cowart's children were older and not around the house so much. So Katie and I tried to fill the empty nest. The farm was a perfect babysitting service for our parents. We were dropped off early in the morning and picked up late in the afternoon. The hours in between were filled with all kinds of danger and adventure. Katie and I lived to imitate everything the Cowart's daughter Love and her best friend Franny had ever done. Love's friend Franny had bounded into her life at the age of five. Before the Cowarts ever moved to their farm, they lived across from Mountain Brook Elementary School. And an hour after the moving truck had left, their doorbell chimed. Upon opening the door, Miss Cowart thought someone had pulled a prank. No one was there. Hearing a loud, Ahem! She looked down and saw a pretty golden-haired child with a very confident face. The cherub demanded, I want to see the little girl of the house. And ever since that day, Love and Franny were inseparable. Franny had a sense of adventure big enough for both girls. It was big enough for a whole neighborhood of girls. Confined to the two of them, it exploded into hair-raising feats, some of which they barely survived. At five years old, Franny suggested they build a fire in the basement ventilator to smoke out the cat. When gray clouds began billowing along the base of the house, they were happily adding fuel to the flames when they were discovered. Lodi, Lodi, child, what are you up to? Your mama's going to take a switch to your legs. The woman who discovered them snatched up the juvenile delinquents by their elbows and began screaming, Help! Somebody put out that fire! Volunteers were rounded up from the neighboring houses to fight the blaze. Bold and fearless, Franny, the youngest of four kids, would take on anybody, children, animals, and even grown-ups. At six, she climbed a ladder that leaned against a neighbor's house. The woman knew the tiny hooves dancing on her roof weren't reindeer. Upon finding a child cavorting up there, she called, Come down here this instant before you fall and get yourself hurt. With arms akimbo, Franny faced her belligerently. Ah, you're not worried about me. You're just worried about your dumb old roof. Love was complete opposite in temperament. She was quiet, studious, and reserved. And that combination of those two personalities at polar extremes seemed to hold the two in balance. If imitation is the highest form of flattery, Katie and I paid generous tributes to Franny and Love. For when we heard their stories of daring deeds, we did our very best to copy everything they did. We hope you have enjoyed this episode of Adventure Cross. All stories in this podcast are true adventures that have helped develop our faith. 
Adventure Cross, adventures that point to the cross. If you liked this episode, please help us spread the word by giving us a five-star review and telling your friends to subscribe.